The sermon text comes from Genesis 41, 53 through 57. This is the word of the Lord. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. As we pray together, Father in heaven, we are grateful for the word that we have heard read this morning. Lord, already this morning we've been able to be reminded of the welcome that we receive in you. We've been able to worship you and pray to you and confess our sins and be reminded of your forgiveness. But Lord, we know that here in your word you have even more for us this morning. So I pray that you would help us to be receptive here to your word, energetic and ready to respond. God, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, Paige and I this weekend, we went to see the, uh, the new Thor movie. And uh, probably most of you are like, this is a new Thor movie? Some of you are like, what's a Thor movie? Um, but the rest of you, um, who, are, who might be interested in it, I promise. I'm not going to give any, anything away that won't be revealed by the time your uh, seat is warm anyway. Uh, but so, the beginning of this movie we went to see, um, it opens up, this opening scene, this man is in the desert with his daughter. And the sun is beating down, and you could tell at this point that they've been there for a while. Because they're not just like, you know, tanned and wrinkly, like they're sun bleached. And their skin is cracked, and you could tell that they've about come to the end of their rope. And so the, the father at this point is despairing, and he begins to pray to his God. And pray that, uh, that his daughter would be spared. But... Tragically, really sadly, um, again, this is in the first few minutes. She is not. Uh, she passes away. And at that point, he goes to this oasis where he hears a voice calling from him. And ironically enough, finds the very God that he had just prayed to. And he goes there expecting to find, he finds this God. He expects to find some kind of sympathy, comfort, or maybe even hoping against hope that he could bring his daughter back. But he goes there, he speaks to this God, and the God mocks him for his suffering. And beyond that, says, don't you know that it's your job, it's your role to suffer for me. It's your job to be a sacrifice for me. And I felt kind of annoyed at that point. It felt like kind of like a, you know, commentary on religion. You know, like this man had prayed for his daughter to be saved, and she wasn't. It kind of went throughout the movie like that. But as I watched it, I was like, you know what? I really don't recognize my God in this at all. And the specific reason why I didn't 
recognize it, kind of came to me later as I was reviewing um, the sermon and this passage for this morning. And I'll get to the specific reason later. But the reason that this sermon and this passage reminded me of that movie was that the man that we see in our passage this morning, the story that we see told in these chapters is a story of a man who suffers immensely, much like this man who prayed to his God. This man we're going to see suffers greatly, yet through that suffering, God brings salvation. This is the story of Joseph. And what Lauren read just a few minutes ago was the end of his story, or at least the end of his story that we're going to see today. That was a moment of triumph and the salvation that God was bringing. But prior to that, the journey along the way was characterized by various points of suffering. So what we're going to do this morning is to look through the life of Joseph. We're going to overview, see, see what happened, and follow this man along on his journey of suffering. And see, at the end, I believe, the conclusions that we can draw both about suffering itself and the salvation that God brings through suffering. So what we're going to do here in looking at Joseph's life is uh, we're going to break what we see up in Joseph's life into basically four episodes. Uh, Life in Jacob's house, life in slavery, life in prison, then life in Pharaoh's courts. I'm going to divide that up into those four sections, and I'm mostly going to be retelling the story, but along the way I'll jump in here and uh, read a little bit. I promise I'm not going to read five chapters this morning. That would be the sermon. Um, So let's go ahead and dive in and look here at Joseph's life. So Joseph's life begins, at least from what we see here, in his life in Jacob's house, his life in his father's household. Let's, Let's look here, Genesis 37, verse 4 verses. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan, or the land that God had promised to Abraham. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zippah, uh, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, or as we saw last week, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So when you see those verses there, you might be sensing a little bit of family tension. And it's there, right? Um, To understand Joseph and uh, the relationship that he had with his brothers, you really got to understand Jacob's family background and how this situation even arose in the first place. So before uh, all of this happened, before even uh, last week's sermon, the events of that, Jacob, fleeing from his brother Esau, went to live with his uncle Laban. And there, being there with his uncle Laban, he 
met a woman that he wanted to marry, Laban's daughter, Rachel. And so he went to Jacob, or excuse me, he went to Laban and asked to have Rachel as his wife. He says, I'll make you a deal here. You work seven years for me, I'll give you Rachel as your wife. And he says, sounds like a good deal to me. So he works seven years, but instead of uh, marrying Rachel, Jacob gives him Leah, Rachel's sister, instead. And so at this point, Jacob should have been like, all right, I guess I'm done. But instead, he's like, I really, really want to marry Rachel. So he goes back to Laban, and Laban says, I'll make you another deal. Seven more years, and you can marry uh, Rachel. So that's what he does. He works seven more years, and he marries uh, Leah's sister. He marries Rachel as well. And what follows from that point is a very good practical lesson in why monogamy is a good idea. Um, because, actually, because Leah and, and Rachel, being sisters, they, they became resentful of one another. Because Rachel was Jacob's obvious favorite. And because of uh, struggles with, with fertility that goes into a great detail. You can go read all about that. But... That resentment and bitterness grows and grows and grows. Eventually, they do have children. And eventually, Jacob has 11, or excuse me, 12 sons, one of them being Joseph, the man we see here in this story today. And that resentment that began with these two sisters, it's present throughout this family. And Joseph eventually becomes hated by his brothers for basically two reasons. Number one... Just like Jacob had Rachel as his clear favorite, Joseph is, uh, is, is Jacob's clear favorite child. It's demonstrated by him giving him this robe, this beautiful robe of many colors, something he didn't give to his other sons, we imagine. And secondly, because Joseph was, he was a tattletale. Um, it says there in verse 2 that he brought a bad report of his brothers to their father. And so we got, we got like a teacher's pet, you know, dad's pet kind of situation going on here. where they, His brothers grew resentful of Joseph. And that comes to a head when Joseph has two dreams. First dream he has is that he and his brothers are out in a field and uh, they, they're, they're all collecting sheaves. And Joseph's sheaves stands up tall and his brother's sheaves bow down to it. He tells his brother about this dream. They don't love it. Right? They're like, um, no, we're not going to be bowing down to you. And Joseph's like, okay. Joseph has a second dream. In the second dream, the sun, moon, and 11 stars bow down to him, signifying Jacob, Rachel, and uh, his 11 brothers. Then he tells them about this dream. And they become even more agitated and upset to him, uh, with the point that, that even Jacob was upset with him to a degree. And so at this point, Joseph's brothers find an opportunity to kill him. They begin scheming. They think, we're going to kill this guy. And then after some internal negotiations uh, amongst the brothers, they decide, we're not going to make any money if we kill him. You know, we can sell him, and at least we can make a buck here and then pretend that he's dead. So that's what they do. They take him, they throw him into a pit, they take his robe, they tear it, they dip it in blood, and they take it back to their father and say that Joseph is dead. And meanwhile, they sell Joseph to some Ishmaelite traders, and Joseph is now away from his family and in slavery. This would have been a despicable act to do to a stranger. This is pure, unadulterated evil to do to their brother. And this begins a pattern in Joseph's life where 
he receives favor in the eyes of the guy in charge, but then he is sinned against and loses that and suffers more. And so he begins this path of suffering. But ironically, ironically, if he had stayed with his brothers, if he had stayed with his dad, had a harmonious relationship with him, he would have never been able to bring salvation to them. They would have all likewise perished in all likelihood. But it is through, it is through this suffering that God was going to bring salvation. So that's life in Jacob's house. But let's look at what Joseph's life was like in slavery. Now this is Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and, made him, uh, and he made him overseer of his house. It put him in charge of all that he had. From that time, he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. All right, so Joseph at this point goes into slavery. And I think at this point it would have been really easy to just kind of give up on things. Just skate by and be like, I'm just going to eat my food. I'm just going to, like, I've been abandoned. I have no life ahead of me. But instead, at a great degree, because of the favor of the Lord and him empowering him in this, he remains faithful. And Potiphar, uh, the, his, his, his master, sees this and promotes him basically to uh, second in charge of his entire estate. All right, so, so Joseph receives uh, favor from the Lord and then receives favor from Potiphar as well. But uh, unfortunately, he, he catches the eye of Potiphar, but he catches the eye of Potiphar's wife as well. So this is, this is six, second half of six here in uh, chapter 39. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put me, he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went in the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So that telling there is pretty self-explanatory. Um, Joseph, he, he catches the attention um, of of. Potiphar's wife, and she tries to get him to uh, be with her, and he refuses her repeatedly, and one day she's like, I'm just, I'm just going to snatch him, all right? I'm just going to grab him, um, I guess she thought that would work, um, and so she attempts that, grabs his, uh, his garment, and um, dude's just out of there, he's gone, right, he's like, I'm honestly sucking around, I'm, I'm out of here, and so for whatever reason, Potiphar's wife, because of this, 
uh, takes the garment as evidence, much like Joseph's brothers had taken his robe that they dipped in blood as, as evidence to their father Jacob. She takes this garment as evidence that he had tried to you know, come on to her and calls the guards. When Potiphar finds out about this, he's furious. And he sends Joseph to prison. And thus the pattern repeats itself. He earns favor in Potiphar's eyes, but he sins against a Potiphar's wife, and he descends further into suffering, and he's sent to prison. So, what's interesting about this, though, is that we, we know how, where we're going here, right? Joseph, he ends up as second in command in Egypt. But it wouldn't be through his relationship with this high-ranking Egyptian official that he gets that place in Egypt. But instead, it would be through the depths of prison. So let's, let's look here at Joseph's life in prison. This is still in chapter 39. This is verse 19. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And so we see the pattern begin to repeat itself again here, where Joseph comes, and because of the Lord and his faithfulness to Joseph, he remains uh, faithful, and um, the keeper of the prison sees this, and he's so impressed with Joseph and the way that the Lord is working and ministering through them. He takes Joseph, a prisoner, and puts him in charge of the prisoners, right? He has that degree of trust and faith in him. And while Joseph's there, he meets uh, a couple of guys from Pharaoh's court. Two guys, one who was a cupbearer, second guy was a baker. And they were put under Joseph's charge, so he developed some kind of relationship with them. And then one night, they both had separate dreams that were kind of similar in nature. And the cupbearer brings his dream to, to Joseph. We won't go over the, the details of it, but he cupbearer brings his dream to Joseph to receive, you know, he's like, you just tell me about it, and Joseph's like, hey, I, can, I think I can interpret that. So he tells him the dream, and Joseph gives him an interpretation. He says, in three days, Pharaoh is going to lift up your head and restore you to the place that you were in. The baker hears this, and he's like, I like the sound of that. So the baker goes, and he's like, hey, Joseph, I had a little, little dreamy dream too. And so then he tells him about his dream, and then Pharaoh, or excuse me, um, uh, Joseph gives him their interpretation and says, in three days, Pharaoh is going to lift up your head from your body. He's going to hang you. Um, like, that's what it says, right? Verse 19, that, uh, that, that he was going to be hanged. And so three days pass, and both of these things happen. The cupbearer is restored to his position, and the baker is uh, hanged. And so, uh, Joseph is able to interpret this dream. And before the, the, the cupbearer is restored to his position, Joseph makes a request of him. He says, hey, when you go to, uh, to Pharaoh's, you know, back to when he restores you, 
would you please remember me? Basically, the idea being, hey, when you are restored to your position, can you give me a good word with Pharaoh? I would really like to leave prison. All right, and so the cupbearer is restored, but he, as it says here, forgets what he had promised to Joseph. He forgets Joseph. And I use the, I use the air quotations here with, with forget because I don't think this dude forgot Joseph in the way that you forget your lunch, right? Like, he forgets the promise that he made to him. He, he forsakes him there in prison. I imagine what it was was he's restored to his position. He thinks, I really don't want to push it, right? Like, you know, I got a good thing going here. Don't want to end up back there in prison and get on Pharaoh's bad side again. And so two years pass with Joseph in prison. Just sitting there, forgotten by everyone, by his brothers. His dad thinks he's dead. Even his cupbearer, forgotten him. And so after two years, though, after two years, though, things change. This is chapter 41, verse 1. After two old years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them. And stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his, uh, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. I bet he did. Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody of the house of the captain of the guard. And we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted it to us, it came about, I was restored to my office. And the baker was hanged. So Pharaoh is at, in bed dreaming, you know, his Pharaoh dreams. And he, he dreams that he's there at the Nile. And these seven hefty cows come out of the river. And then seven uh, skinny cows come out. And in a surprise twist, the seven skinny cows eat the seven plump cows. And he's like, ah, that's weird. He wakes up and goes back to sleep. And he dreams basically the same thing, but it's grain this time. And so after having that dream twice, he wakes up, and he's like, I think there might be something to this. And as it says, his spirit was troubled. So he starts asking around, you know, if anyone can interpret it. And everyone's like, ah, I can't really interpret that. Except the cupbearer, who's like, you know, I know a guy. I think my, he might be your dude. And so he calls Joseph out. And what happens at this point is a matter of course. Joseph interprets the dream, and he says, the seven plump cows, well, they're seven years of plenty. The seven skinny cows are seven years of famine. So, Pharaoh, what you should do is store up the excess in those seven good years so that you have enough for the seven bad years. And Pharaoh says, I like the way you talk. I want you to administrate that whole thing. I want you to gather up during the years of plenty and to, uh, to administrate and give out during 
the years of famine. He made him second over the entire kingdom to make that happen. And that is where we get to what Lauren read this morning. He saves up during those seven years, and he is able to save many, many, many people because of this position that the Lord had given him. It was a tremendous path of suffering that God used to bring about the salvation, the physical deliverance of many people. As such, in this story full of suffering leading to salvation, I believe there's much to mine here regarding suffering and salvation. Suffering and salvation. First thing that, that stands out to me in Joseph's story is the immense amount of suffering that he went through. I believe basically there's, in my looking at this, four things that, that stand out to me about Joseph's suffering through this story that we can glean about suffering. First, first is that sin always causes suffering. Sin always causes suffering. Um, I don't want you to misunderstand me and you know, hear that Every kind of suffering is the direct result of sin. We could say that all suffering is an indirect result of sin, at least, right? But what happens to Joseph here, though, the suffering that he undergoes, right? He's not undergoing a natural disaster, is what I mean here. It's not, it's not an economic downturn, right, that's causing Joseph suffering. This is the direct result of willful sin committed against him three times. His brothers scheming against him and selling him into slavery— Potiphar's wife falsely accusing him of, uh, of, you know, acts. And thirdly, the baker forgetting his promise to him and enacting a cowardice. All of those actions increased Joseph's suffering. And what we see throughout Scripture, time and time again, is a take-to-the-bank kind of thing that suffering always follows sin. Suffering always follows sin. Sometimes it's in very direct and specific ways, right? We back ourselves into a corner because of lies or, or slander that we, we uh, commit or, or whatever else, right? We suffer directly because of our own sin. At times we suffer because of other people's sin, you know, maybe something that they, didn't, they never intended, right? We see this often in churches where one person's sin becomes kind of the, the pain of everybody in the congregation to some degree or another. And sometimes, as we saw here three times, people sin willfully, inflicting suffering on us or other people, or times we sin willfully, inflicting, sin, or inflicting pain and suffering on other people. But regardless of how it comes about precisely, sin always causes suffering. Suffering is always the result of sin. Even in the instances of, of uh, Joseph's brothers harming him or Potiphar's wife lying about him, it may feel like they're getting something they want, but even that comes at the expense of another person's suffering. 
Sin always causes suffering. So my plea to us is that if we want to be a people who are exhibiting a, a gospel culture that we've talked about so much, one that displays the goodness of God's grace and not the suffering that comes from sin, we should be continually putting away sin within us and striving to live faithfully and in righteousness so that we may avoid to some degree suffering that comes from sin. So uh, sin always causes suffering. But another thing that we see throughout Joseph's life that's really clear to me is that suffering is unavoidable. Suffering is unavoidable. Joseph did not sit down and do any of these things to bring the suffering upon himself, right? You might could say, well, if Joseph hadn't told those dreams to his brothers, ah, he wouldn't have been sold into slavery. I've, I've heard people say, you know, like, um, if, you know, he, know, he knew how Potiphar's wife felt, if he hadn't been in the house alone with her, well, that would have never happened. Well, it's like, well, all those things are true, but, I mean, he didn't know his brothers were going to try to kill him, you know? Like, he didn't know what Potiphar's wife was going to do. It says explicitly the man was just trying to do his job, right? Like, these situations were brought about because of the sin of other people. The suffering that Joseph had was truly unavoidable. We are not in the place of God. We, we don't control the, the natural disasters. We don't control the economy. We definitely don't control the actions of other people. The truth is that whether suffering comes as a result of our sin or suffering comes from, from other things, suffering is sure to come. Suffering comes to all of us. And what I'm getting at is this. You might, if you're like me in your life, be experiencing or have experienced some kind of suffering. And you start reflecting back on it and you're like, man, if I could have done this, I could have done that, could have done this, and that would have never happened. And then you turn those coulds into shoulds. I should have done this, I should have done that. And then what becomes true for you is like everything that's wrong in my life is my fault. And that's not always the case. That wasn't Joseph's case, here suffering was unavoidable. Suffering is unavoidable. Another thing that we see about suffering, though, is despite these first two, sin always causes suffering, and suffering is uh, unavoidable, we see that suffering should not deter faithfulness. Suffering should not deter faithfulness or righteousness. So it would have been, as I mentioned earlier, really easy for the things that happened to Joseph's life to make him to give up. To give up on his life, to give up on the Lord, to give up on his promises or those, those dreams that he had when he was a kid. I imagine being in that prison, wasting away, I would have felt like, thinking back on those dreams, to be like, how on earth is that going to happen? You know, my brothers to bow down to me. I'm not even, I haven't seen them in years I don't even know how far away I am. Like, I couldn't get back there if I wanted to. I, yeah, I, I'm here in prison, right? I don't even, uh, I have no place in life anymore. But he doesn't. He doesn't give up. I think it also would have been easy to, to become uh, cynical and to 
abuse his, his, power of, uh, his power that he had gotten once he received it from Pharaoh, right? And you think back, like, man, the way my brothers treated me, the way that uh, Potiphar's wife treated me, the way this cupbearer treated me, he could have had vengeance on his mind, right? He could have, uh, or could have got this idea that this is an acceptable way to treat people, but he doesn't. He faithfully uh, goes through the task of administrating these seven good years and then seven bad years. But how? How was Joseph able, through all of this suffering, how was he able to remain faithful? Well, the answer is actually very, very clear. It's that God was with him, and God was strengthening him. Just in these little passages that we read this morning, we've heard that God was with him three times. We've heard that the Lord calls all he did succeed two times. We heard that the Lord put his blessing upon him and that he blessed all of Potiphar's house through him. We read that the Lord showed his steadfast love to him. And we read that the Lord caused him to have favor with the prison guard. The Lord was with Joseph through all of these times of suffering, enabling him to remain faithful despite his suffering. The Lord said this in Luke 12, 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Even as we face the bold opposition of the world, no matter what suffering may come, the Lord has already given us what we need to remain faithful. If we're in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and empowers us for faithfulness despite the suffering we experience, despite our circumstances. So we see that suffering, or sin always causes suffering, and suffering is unavoidable, and suffering should not deter faithfulness. The last thing we see is that suffering is never pointless. Suffering is never pointless. Joseph's pain that he experienced through his life, I imagine that many times felt very pointless, right? Like, I got sold as a slave. Like, what's the point of that? I'm now been lied about. Come on. Like, and I'm in prison. Why? This makes no sense. It would have been just about impossible for him to work out exactly what the Lord was doing through all of that. Truth is that our suffering we experience is never for no reason, but the Lord uses even our suffering to accomplish his purposes in us. And suffering is never pointless. And in fact, in fact, the suffering that Joseph was experiencing was working out salvation for the Egyptian people and the people around them. That kind of leads me to last thing to look at. And it's what Joseph's story tells us about God's salvation. Of course, as we've already said throughout this sermon, throughout our time this morning, throughout this passage, that God uses suffering to accomplish salvation. And we, we see that in the way that God directs Joseph's life to bring about salvation. But one thing that's really interesting about Joseph's life to me. And it's something that the church has kind of um, said for, we would say at this point, millennia, is that Joseph 
is a type of Jesus. That Joseph and the suffering that he experienced and the salvation that God brings through it was a foreshadowing of Christ who would come later. And there's a lot of parallels that we could draw out between Joseph and Jesus, but I just want to draw out three that I think can kind of help us uh, see it quickly. First, that both suffered unjustly. Both Joseph and Jesus suffered unjustly. Just as Joseph was betrayed by his brothers for some of money, Christ was betrayed by one of his disciples for the same, for some cash. As Joseph was falsely accused and punished because of uh, Potiphar's wife, Jesus was falsely accused by the Sanhedrin and unjustly put to death. Both of these two suffered unjustly. Both Joseph and Jesus also, number two, were God's instruments of bringing salvation to many people, even those who hated them. God used the suffering of Joseph to bring salvation, not just to himself, not just to a couple of people, but God used Joseph's suffering to bring salvation to many people. In the same way, God used Christ and his suffering, his death, to bring salvation to many people. In fact, that salvation was brought even to those who accused them and those who hated them. Joseph's brothers, as we'll see later, would come themselves to get food from Joseph and in Egypt. Christ died to bring salvation even to those who crucified him. So both were God's instruments of bringing salvation. Last of all, both accomplish salvation through suffering. The way, the way that salvation was brought was through suffering. It wasn't an incident, right? Like it wasn't, it's like, ah, well, suffering's here. We can work this around, you know, figure it out. But God was using the suffering along the way to bring salvation both through Joseph, as we've seen today, and in the same way through Christ. The unjust suffering that Christ experienced was not happenstance. The God's like, ah, see, I can work this out, and I can accomplish salvation, you know, through his execution. No, it was the plan all along. God, in the suffering that Jesus experienced, brings salvation through suffering. God's way of salvation is through suffering. The question we might have, though, is why? why? Why would God pursue this route of salvation, salvation through suffering? I think there's a couple things that can be said. First, to thwart worldly wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, if you wanted to turn there, it's, it's a little bit longer of a passage to read. Um, it's 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, Paul says this. For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and uh, the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. God brings salvation through suffering to disrupt the world's idea of wisdom. I, I mentioned the superhero movie that we had watched this weekend, and we've all, we've all seen them, right? We've all seen the superhero movies uh, lately. The idea of salvation in those movies is you got a superhuman, one who's, who's uh, stronger than everyone else, who's more powerful than everyone else, and he just he flies into the situation, he rescues everyone, and that's how it works. But God does not fly into the situation with superpowers, but instead, through an ordinary birth, he is born placed in feeding trough, and he lives full life, suffering, never having a place to lay his head, and is unjustly put to death. And it's through that that salvation is brought. God brings salvation not through power and strength, but through, ironically, suffering himself. That leads me to the last reason why God would pursue this route of salvation this, that this statement, this statement right here might be true. God has not abandoned frail humanity to suffering, but began the process of redeeming us from that suffering by entering into it himself. God and the salvation that he brings, he is not distant from suffering, but he himself willingly enters into it in Jesus to redeem the suffering. So I mentioned at the beginning, what is the difference between that God that the man prayed to there at the beginning of that, the Thor movie and, and our God? Was this. That God mocked the man for his suffering and told him that his whole job was to be a sacrifice for him. But Christ does not mock our suffering but willingly enters into it. And Christ does not tell us to be a sacrifice for him, but comes to willingly be a sacrifice for us. It's through suffering that God has chosen to bring salvation. It's my prayer that all of us, Trace Crossing, would be continually edified and reminded of that. And those of you who perhaps may not have uh, realized it yourself, implore you to come and find strength and the weakness that God displays. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so indebted to you. Lord, it's, it's not through our working, it's not through our strength that salvation is brought. Lord, but it's through weakness. It's through even the weakness that you, our king, our all-powerful God, have exhibited by taking on flesh, embracing suffering, in bringing salvation. Lord, I pray that that truth would be continually stirred in us. We'd be reminded of what you have brought in Jesus. God, we pray all of this in Christ's name.